0: Hi everyone, I'm Jan Kabile, your host for The Fix, the show that's a deep dive into Photoshop, Lightroom, and all things post-processing. In this episode, I sit down with one of the smartest and most creative guys that I know when it comes to photography, Photoshop, and Lightroom. That's Mr. Sean Duggan. We're going to talk about some of the best ways for you to learn Photoshop and Lightroom. We'll talk about books and courses and workshops and help you to find the best resources for your learning style and your level of skill. And then Sean is going to share his screen and he's going to show you some techniques for getting the look of a mask in Photoshop without going through all the trouble of creating a mask from scratch. So stay tuned for that tutorial. And now let's jump in and see what Sean has to say. Sean, it's so great to see you today.
1: Hey, Jan. Good to see you, too. Thanks for having me on the show.
0: You know, Sean, whenever I give people your bio, I'm so amazed at all the many different ways that you've been teaching people over the years. You've done books and workshops, and you do lynda.com courses, and it got me thinking about that there are so many different ways not only to teach Photoshop and Lightroom and photography, but also how to learn them. And right. I know I know, a lot of photographers are kind of flummoxed by this. There are all these options out there, and if they're beginners, they don't know where to get started. And if they're already into post-processing, they kind of don't always know where to go to get the best information. Do you have any input for us on this?
1: Well, you know, I'm I'm fortunate in that I've been teaching uh, Photoshop and digital imaging software and processing um, since 1997. So I've had the benefit of seeing uh, and interacting with a lot of different uh, Uh, types of classes and types of learning experiences and and different types of students to see how people uh, do best when they're learning this. And I I think it really varies depending on uh, who you are and where you are at in your familiarity with the software. So I think if you're just starting out and have only a smattering of familiarity with the software, I think that uh, a course where you actually go to a, a venue in a classroom situation where you can be guided through some of the essentials of using the software can be really beneficial because you can have your questions answered right away. Um, you have uh you know other people there you can uh learn from. And then the online equivalent to that uh would sort of be a, a course like is available on lynda.com because that way you can kind of check in at your own pace. You're not going to get necessarily your questions answered right away, sort of like in a, a, a typical classroom situation. But those courses are usually structured so well that all the questions are typically anticipated, or, or most of the questions, um, and are answered in the course of the movie. So, what's nice about that is you can check in at your own pace and really move at your own pace to get, uh, improve your understanding of the software. So, I think those are two of the, you know, real fundamental ways that people can can learn. And of course, there's books as well, uh, if you're a a book learner.
0: That's true. Let's talk a bit about what you said first about getting into a live situation where there's a teacher or an instructor or practitioner there to help you. I really remember when I first started learning Photoshop a billion years ago, um, I didn't know where to start. And so I kind of looked around. There weren't a lot of Photoshop workshops at that point you had to go to the community colleges to take um you know like classes as a continuing education student and i took some classes that were good but i took some that weren't so good right and i think for me it came down to who the instructor was and their method of teaching and just because what i found out is just because it says photoshop class that doesn't mean it's going to be a good photoshop class right or one that is good for you so what you know how do you start filtering through that if you decide that yeah i need to go and be with someone who's sitting there next to me at least to get started
1: yeah well i think that um you know uh targeting your course search to the type of photoshop work that you want to do if if it is indeed photoshop you know there's photoshop for designers photoshop for illustrators photoshop for photographers so there's all sorts of different ways you could go within photoshop so um Finding out a little bit about the instructor and about the type of work that they do uh, is certainly key because that's going to give you an idea that, uh, you know, they're going to be teaching maybe the kind of stuff that you're interested in. So if you're interested in doing uh, composites, fine art composites, things like that in Photoshop, but the Photoshop course that you're considering is being taught by somebody who doesn't do any of that sort of work, it's more straight photography, uh, then... That type of course would certainly probably teach you valuable Photoshop skills and workflow methodologies, but it might not address your desire to learn more of the compositing sort of uh, topic. So um, kind of knowing who the instructor is and what they do uh, is important. And you know, these days, it's uh, pretty easy to see if, if the instructor has any videos on YouTube. You can get an idea of their uh, their teaching style maybe from some of that. And so that's one way you can approach that.
0: That's a great idea. And you make a really good point that just because it's a Photoshop class doesn't mean it's a Photoshop for photographer's class. And even if it is for photographers, it may not be your approach to photography. So you may be waiting there the whole class and never get what you need.
1: Right. Um, Yeah.
0: I also think that it's important to get into a class where the skill level fits your needs. You know, if you're somebody who doesn't know anything at all and you jump into a class that's about fine art compositing. I think you might have some problems. So I always yeah. urge people to make sure they have the essential skills under their belt, maybe with a beginner class first.
1: Yeah, definitely. And and, and I think one of the, the pitfalls is, is that a lot of people sometimes mischaracterize their own experience level. They think that maybe they've opened up Photoshop uh, you know, a few times, they've played with it for a while, so they, they see the term beginner in a class, like beginning Photoshop, and they think, oh, I'm beyond that, when in reality, they probably aren't beyond that or aren't very far beyond that. So uh, I think that most people who are just starting out could probably gain a lot from taking a beginning class. But again, it it does help to look at the syllabus and get an idea of of what's being covered. And if this is a course you're going to go to, like at a community college or an art center or something like that, you know, by all means, reach out to the instructor, send him an email and say, you know, hey, this is where I'm at with my experience with the program and I've had it for this long and done such and such do you think that your course is uh, right for me or am I beyond that? And should I be looking at the next level course?
0: That is a terrific idea. You know, I have another idea. i if I could afford it and I were a student of anything, I would most like to be sitting with one expert who's paying attention just to me, working with my photos and answering all my questions. And that seems almost impossible unless, you know, you really have a lot of time and a lot of resources. But it turns out it's not that impossible these days. I don't know if you're familiar with these online mentoring programs that have been springing up. One example is the Arcanum.com. Um, Another is just some uh, individual photographers are doing coaching online where they use uh, Skype video or G plus hangouts to interact with students one on one. You know, just having a conversation like you and I are having now online and sharing screens.
1: Yeah, I do that myself. I have a network of clients that I work with uh, both in person down in the San Francisco Bay Area and uh, up here in the Sierra foothills. And I have uh, clients all across the country that I work with. And it's a really great way because, um, you know, once you're at a certain level, what's nice about that is that it 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 has that benefit of that one-on-one attention. You know, you can sort of zero in on exactly what you want to learn and what you want to uh, focus on. And a lot of times we're using, you know, uh, the, the client's own images. So that way, you know, they're getting uh, to learn the techniques that they want to learn and they're learning them on their own images for their own project. So it's a really... A great way to learn. And, you know, fortunately, the, the, uh, the web screen sharing technology that we have today makes that very easy to do.
0: Yeah, it's getting better and better. So beyond all of that, um, I think there still is a place for our old friend, the Photoshop book, <laughs> you know, and you've written these amazing books. Um, one of my favorite books ever is the Creative Digital Darkroom that you wrote with Katrine Eisman. Is it yeah. Katrine or Katrin? I never say right. Katrine. Katrine, yeah. yeah. That book, you should see. I mean, you guys, you got to get this book. Creative <laughs> Digital Darkroom by Sean Duggan and Katrine Eisman is fantastic. Um, would you say it's not a beginner's book?
1: Yeah, I wouldn't call it a beginner's book. I mean, there there's certainly uh, a lot that a be- beginner could pick up, but it's not written from the standpoint of uh, a beginning user. I mean, it's written from the standpoint that you already know the basics of Photoshop uh, you already know your way around the program. So uh, it's a little bit more advanced than that. But it it really uh, talks about the whole kind of digital darkroom workflow. And it covers a little bit of Lightroom too, but it's mainly Photoshop. Um, and it really was a great fun project to work on. And I'm actually teaching a workshop at Anderson Ranch Art Center in Colorado in June of 2015 called the Creative Digital Darkroom. So it's a, a week-long workshop that's a distillation of many of the the ideas and concepts in that book.
0: Well, that's fantastic. And I'm so excited you're teaching at Anderson Ranch. You know, that's one of my favorite places to teach, too. Yeah, it's um, just
1: in your backyard.
0: It's in my backyard, and I taught there last summer. And uh, the woman that runs the program went to grad school with me. So it's, yeah, we should talk about that some more. Um, yeah. But you know, that brings up the point that there are also these intense workshops that go on for quite a bit of time um, that sometimes aren't found in locations that you might think of so for example sean is talking about an art center and an art center its orientation is toward making uh, art you know art projects like fine art photography but artists need to know how to use lightroom and photoshop too so there's a place where you can go and learn those subjects from some of the best teachers ever um, you know, some really famous photographers like Sean and and many others that you've heard of um, teaching these places. There's one, uh, Maine Media Workshops, is another one. I know of uh, Rocky Mountain uh, Photography Workshops in Montana, the Anderson Ranch Arts Center in Colorado. Sa-
1: Santa Where Fe? else? Santa Fe workshops.
0: Santa Fe Photo Workshops, I believe they're called, yeah. in Santa All Fe, right. New Mexico. All right. And these experiences are fantastic because not only are you learning, um, but you have direct access to the instructors and you get to shoot in a lot of these workshops too and then work with your actual photos in the post-processing programs, right, Sean?
1: Yeah, and in all of those workshops, uh, typically they're you know five to seven days depending on, on the different workshop venue. But uh, on all of the ones that I do, there's always a, an actual photography component. We're not in a digital lab in front of the computers You know, eight hours a day, because if you go to a place that has stunning, beautiful scenery, uh, it would be a shame not to take advantage of that. So uh, we're kind of doing both. We're out shooting and photographing. And then we are coming back into the lab, um, covering certain topics and working on processing our images, making them look better. Uh, You know, a wide variety of topics, depending on uh, what the workshop is about
0: and i think that's really important i mean let's be honest there's only so much you can take of trying to stuff computer programs into your brain um (laughs) you know and particularly when you're not using them so this approach of shooting bringing your own photos into the computer learning as you work on your own photos i think is a great way uh you know to pick up useful topics that work for your workflow but it's also it helps you remember what you've learned the idea for me of practicing is oh so important
1: yeah well, you know, it's it's also, um, it, it kind of exercises both sides of your creative brain because it's, it's a different type of creativity to be out working with your camera and seeing scenes and composing scenes and uh, capturing them with your camera. So that's a different type of creativity from actually sitting in front of the computer. And working on them in Lightroom or Photoshop, so it kind of uh, really gives you a good creative workout during the week, and it splits it up so you have that time when you're out in the fresh air, usually in really interesting, beautiful scenery and locations, and then you can come back and work on your images uh, at other times during the day. So it really works well in terms of you know kind of being the 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 whole the the holistic whole body creative experience.
0: <laughs> That's true. It's really great. So I guess the way I'm coming down on this is that. Whatever you can do that's taught by professional instructors, and that kind of takes a whole approach to a subject. It's great to be able to go to YouTube and look at a tutorial or two, but if you really want to get a sense of the entire workflow, um, it's very useful to take these, these larger form um, teaching uh, learning
1: experiences, I think. Yeah. And, you know, there are a lot of very good videos on YouTube that you can watch. But unfortunately, there's a lot of really mediocre videos on YouTube, um, and I've seen some where I just kind of like, you know, oh boy, I, <laughs> I hope people aren't taking that too seriously because you know they're they're advocating a, a a workflow method or a way of doing something that is probably destructive or not the best way to do things. So um, having a course taught by you know. Uh, A professional who's been using the software for a long time, and also as an educator who's been doing courses like this for a while, that's going to give you, you know, uh, the best experience in terms of knowing that the information that you're getting is really solid information that you can really put to work on, you know, your own projects.
0: That's right. And I guess the last thing I'll say about it is there's a big difference between knowing a subject well and being able to teach a subject well. Right. And, and, you know, I mean, years ago when I was first teaching, um, I used to teach at the Ojai Digital Arts Center, um, Linda Weinman's live classroom that she had many, many years ago in the 90s. Um, And I realized, you know, uh, that uh, it doesn't matter. It it didn't matter how much I knew. I also had to learn how to teach. And I did that from the best. So yeah. It's really
1: important. Yeah, you're right. No, it's an excellent point. Yeah. So
0: having said that, I'd like you to teach us something. Would you do so, that?
1: Yeah. Let me uh, do my screen share here and we'll dive in and I'll show you some fun stuff. So what I'm going to show you are a few techniques to do what I call masking without a mask. So uh, I use layer masks a lot in my compositing. And of course, a layer mask is a way that you can control the visibility Of elements on a layer, so you're only showing what you want. Uh, But there are also a couple of other techniques that allow you to create a masking type effect without actually making a layer mask. So sometimes they can be shortcuts, other times they create an effect uh, all on their own. So let me just dive in and show you a couple of these. I'm going to start off with a blend mode based technique. Uh, I have a file here that has A layer on the top called ship's log and this is just a page from an old ship's log from 1888 and I want to blend this in so that only the dark writing appears over the uh, the sky of the ship so what I'm gonna do is just gonna change the blend mode at the top of the layers panel I'm gonna open the menu where it says normal and I'm just gonna choose multiply And the paper pretty much disappears. Now, it doesn't disappear totally because it does add a slight darkening effect to it. But the takeaway here is that the Multiply Blend Mode will emphasize the dark areas on a layer while not showing or de-emphasizing the light areas. And so the, the neutral color for the Multiply Blend Mode is white. Anything white on a layer will just not show up at all anything that is a lighter tone, such as the page on the ship's log, will show up less and darker uh, elements will show up totally. So. And so it, imagine,
0: sorry to interrupt, but I, I was going to say, imagine if you wanted to have that text on top of the ship and you tried to select that text and then cut away its background, that's not going to work. Right?
1: No, no, not going to work. It, <laughs> it, there are ways you could get around it, but the blend mode is the shortest way around. So, uh, this blend mode works really great for what I call nostalgia type composites, where you might be taking, um, you know, old letters and passports, things like that, from you know your the the family history shoebox, and you want to put together a little n- nostalgic uh, composite using some old family uh, paraphernalia. Uh, ble- uh, the multiply blend mode works really well. I'm just going to turn on this other layer here. Uh, this is a sky layer. I'll, I'm going to set its blend mode to uh, multiply as well. And I'm going to turn that page back on. And then I'm going to add a um, I'm going to actually just sort of add a layer mask to the sky layer. And I'm just going to use a soft fuzzy edge paintbrush to mask off the bottom part of that so we don't see that hard edge. Oh, so now, just- Sean,
0: you said you were going to show us masking without a mask. Now you're cheating. I,
1: I know yeah. I am cheating, but most of this was masking without a mask. Okay. There we go. So that way it's a little bit more of a natural transition there. So that's the first one there. Let's go to the next one, which is again a, a similar technique, but just using the opposite uh, colors. So I have this layer here that has a, a glass dome on it and what i'm going to do is i'm going to change its blend mode to screen so where multiply emphasize the dark areas on a layer and hid the light areas screen does the opposite screen is going to emphasize the light areas and hide the dark areas so you can see that i have <gasps> wow this dome here and i can put it over the mountain now, I've, I purposely photographed this. Let me just set this back to normal. I purposely photographed this dome against black because I knew that I could use this effect. So this is a, an example of uh, changing the way you photograph. to Take advantage of something you can do in post-processing later on. So let me just set that back to screen. And I have a another layer here that has a starburst um, graphic on it. Same thing. I, I only want to show the light areas of this layer and not the dark areas, so I'll just set that to, to screen. And now I can move this and maybe stick that right up on top of the, um, the mountain. And again, I, I will cheat here. I will add a layer mask just to hide the dome down at the bottom because I really only want the dome to show up. Uh, kind of in the background there, so it looks like it's sort of just over the mountain there. Oh, there that's so
0: cool. That's such a sci-fi effect. I love that.
1: Yeah, and, and the cool thing about this composite, actually, is that this composite originated on an iPhone. So, I, so uh, I, I took what I knew about Blending Modes, and when I found some apps that had Blending Modes in them, I, I made this composite on an iPhone. All right, so let me move on here really quick, and I've got a couple of other... Um, things to show here. Let me just reset this layer here so that we can come back. All right. So uh, I have this uh, layer of the balloon and I want to not show the blue sky around it. Now of course I could select this and just delete that or mask it out but here's this other technique which sometimes can be useful. Sometimes it's useful for just a quick uh, proof of concept sort of effect, like maybe you don't have the time to do a quick mask or, or a detailed mask and you just want to have a, a quick uh, technique to isolate something. Works great when something is surrounded by a uncomplicated uniform color. So I'm going to double click on the layer and I can either do that on the thumbnail of the layer or here just in the empty area to the right of the layer name. And this brings up the layer style dialogue, where if I wanted to, I could apply things like drop shadows or bevel and emboss effects. But the very first option is the blending options. And then down at the bottom of that, there are two sliders in the blend if section. And what these do is they allow you to control what pixels on a layer are visible based on their brightness level. So you see that there are numbers here for zero to 255. Zero is black, 255 is white. Uh, Just to give you an example of what's happening here, if I take the shadow slider here and move it up, you can see that the dark parts of the balloon are disappearing. And so what's happening there, I've I've got this set to 95. It means that anything that is darker than level 95 don't show that. And so it doesn't. So that's sort of what's going on with the blend if sliders. But what I'm going to do is going to open this up here, the Blend If menu, and instead of gray, which is the overall brightness of the layer, I'm going to choose the blue color, color channel, because I really want to work on the sky, and the sky is light, so I'm going to take the highlight slider for the blue, for the this layer slider here, and I'm going to move that in, and you can see the sky start to etch away.
0: Now, this isn't just about color, I see, because the blue in the balloon is not being etched away. Um, this is really the blue channel, right?
1: Yes, it, it, it's the blue channel, so I'm only affecting the blue. And and the blue in the balloon is got a little bit of green in it, and it's also darker. If I kept going, I would eventually start to lose that. There it, there goes. it goes. But I have to go quite a bit darker. So the the thing to keep in mind about this technique is that if there were any other tones in the image that were similar to this light blue of the sky, they would be affected as well. So, it's what I call a situational technique. It will only work if you know a certain situation is present in your image. Can
0: I throw out an, another example um, where I've used this? Not using the blue channel, but just using the blend if gray channel, the default. Huh. Um, I had a photograph of a dove flying in a sky, and I wanted and the dove was very light. The sky was darker. And so I was able to use that to etch away the darker sky around the dove in a way, you know, where I could never have selected that because the dove's wings were so soft and intricate and they were also beating. And so there was like some movement in the wings right. as well. And that was a really, I was like so excited to be able to do that with just dragging a couple of sliders. It was great.
1: Yeah. And, and that is a great example uh, for, for, actually That that's probably a better example than this because the balloon is such a a, a kind of distinct subject here against its background. So so let me just mention one other thing here. You may notice um, that when you get in here and look at this in your own version of Photoshop, that there's a little line between these sliders. And if you hold down the option key on Mac or the alt key on Windows, you can split that slider apart. And what that does is it creates a softer transition. So sometimes there are kind of a harder transition here and let me just uh let me cancel this for a second and move this over um some darker background here let me just move it over the uh trees there now when you have a blend if or advanced blending option applied the layer has this little new icon here um well relatively new i think it first showed up in photoshop cs6 but this tells you that there is an advanced blending effect applied to that layer, which is nice because prior to that, you really had no idea. You just sort of had to remember that that's what was. So you can see here that as I split the slider, it really does a better job at um, tr- creating that nice transition between tones.
0: And where are you looking down in the the basket where the people are right
1: yeah and also the guy wires here or not guy wires but the 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 wires and and ropes that connect the basket to the uh the balloon and and, and, you know the, the other thing to point out uh is that really fine delicate detail like these wires here may not survive this transition very well so you can see that there they're disappearing but if I if I move this, you can see that I'm getting a much better uh, effect on the basket in terms of getting it to blend. And I'm in into like 200% here, so it's up a lot closer than it would be normally. This is here back to 100%.
0: So we've got these advanced blending sliders. I call them the blend-if sliders. Yeah, that's what
1: I call them too. And
0: before before that, you were showing us something even easier to access, which are the blend modes in the layers panel. Do you have any other? uh, Yes,
1: and I actually, I I do have one other thing. I'm not sure if we have time for it. Real quick. Five minutes, we have. We have time. Okay, so I have clipping masks here. So here's the balloon again. Let me just throw the first balloon away. So this balloon is on a separate layer. It's surrounded by transparency. So it, it's, it's not, you know, here as, as a result of any kind of effect. And I have above it a clock. So if I wanted to, let's say for a collage effect, or maybe if I'm doing a, a graphic design layout, if I wanted the clock to show up inside the balloon, you know, normally you might think, well, I need to mask the put a, a layer mask on the clock so it shows up inside the balloon. But there is a very cool effect called a clipping mask. And if you go up to the layer menu, you'll find it here. Midway down the menu, it says create clipping mask. And if I choose that, it indents the clock layer in the layers panel. And there's a little arrow pointing down. So what's happening here is the shape of the balloon layer is essentially acting like a cookie cutter for the clock. And so the clock is only showing up inside the shape of the balloon layer. So the transparency of the layer at the bottom of the clipping group determines the visibility of the layers that are clipped to it. So it's a really nice way to get a a quick effect where you need to have um, the visibility of one layer determined by the shape of another layer.
0: So that's where I think a lot of people get tripped up too. Is that it is the layer below that is determining the ultimate shape and clipping the layer or layers above. Correct. Right.
1: Yeah. And 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 the other thing to to note that is is that you can use uh, clipping in terms of an adjustment layer. So if I add an adjustment layer above the clock, there is an option in the properties panel for the adjustment layers it's this first little button here It looks like a little square with a downward arrow that will clip this adjustment to the layer below it so right now if I darken this down you can see it's affecting the whole image but if I click on the clipping icon here or button it's now only affecting the clock so now you can see in the layers panel how it's indented just like the clock layer is And this is only affecting the clock. And since the clock is clipped to the balloon, it's only showing up inside that shape of the balloon. So
0: there are all kinds of things you can do with this. A really typical thing you see a lot is where the bottom layer is text and the top layer is a photograph.
1: Yes. And you can use
0: use the shape of the letters to um, define where the photograph appears.
1: Indeed. Classic example.
0: So, you know, Sean, I know that uh, you're using very simple examples, but I want to make sure that people understand that you are an amazing artist and you have created some really great composites like this that are very believable using these techniques, you know, where they aren't just simple teaching examples. Where can people find those?
1: Uh, Probably the easiest uh, place would be at my website. There's a, a, a gallery on my website called Postcards from the Imaginarium. And so I have some of my you know, more detailed composites in there. Uh, and then I also have, uh, if they follow me on on Facebook, they can just go to my website, SeanDuggan.com, and there's links to all the social media channels where I'm at. Uh, and I, I post a lot of stuff to my Facebook page. And then if, you, if you're interested in doing composites on your smartphone or tablet, I have a brand new course at lynda.com on creating photo composites on smartphones and tablets.
0: Oh, that's great. I can't wait to listen to that one. Well, unfortunately, it's that time to say goodbye. I so much enjoyed talking to you, as always, Sean.
1: Well, I've enjoyed it too, Jan, and thanks so much for inviting me on. I look forward to coming on again. I'll definitely invite you. Cool.
0: Thanks for joining me for this episode of The Fix on the TWIP Network. If you'd like to see more great photography shows and catch more episodes of The Fix, head over to thisweekinphoto.com. And don't forget to tune in next week for more great interviews and interesting Photoshop and Lightroom techniques here on The Fix. See you then.